Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, it's the blog post from CMS Administrator Seema Verma that's rattling nerves for providers. We'll learn why later in the broadcast when Dr. John Hall reports our lead story. Also in today's broadcast, physician payment is in the news. Dwayne Abbey has that report. Minnesota and Nebraska are in the news thanks to CMS. Alan Fink-Samnick will explain why. Alan will also have the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let's start today with our weekly update on how poor Keypro is handling their duties. I received an email from a hospital about a Medicare Advantage patient who appealed their discharge. Amazingly, the patient got through to Keypro and filed the appeal. Keypro contacted the hospital requesting the medical records. The hospital sent them, but then Keypro first claimed they didn't receive them, then they said they did get them, then they said they forgot to put a number on the account, and then they claimed it was under review. Then, of course, Keypro called them and claimed they didn't have the file, so they instructed the hospital to issue a new important message from Medicare to the patient and ask the patient once again to start over and request an appeal. So the hospital staff actually got Keypro on the phone and handed the phone to the patient so they could once again ask for an appeal, and Keypro could not deny that it happened. And the process started again. Now, I'm sure this hospital is not alone, so be sure to call your regional CMS office and your state hospital association to report your frustrations. In other news, it's been reported many times how the Medicare Advantage plans take Medicare rules and contort them to meet their own financial needs. For example, the Medicare rule on readmissions is that a readmission is combined only if it's the same calendar day and for the same reason. But then the 30-day readmission rate is used to calculate the readmission penalty, which is imposed in future years. But several MA plans have policies referencing the CMS payment methodology that they use to deny payment for any readmission within 30 days. Well, if you're contracted with those plans, then whoever signed the contract agreed that they can do that. And CMS won't intervene because the patient still gets their care. Remember, the rule for MA patients is the patient must be able to get the same care available to them under traditional Medicare. If the MA plan pays you nothing, the patient still got their care, so CMS is content. But last week, UnitedHealthcare released a policy that should get CMS's attention. The policy announced in their July monthly bulletin was entitled Home Healthcare Services Claim Requirements for MA Members. And it seems to state that in order for a patient to receive home care services, they must have had a face-to-face encounter with a physician who cared for the patient in the hospital or in the post-acute care facility or with an allowed 
physician practitioner. And it implies that the patient's own primary care physician is not qualified to order home care services no matter when the patient was last seen. It also implies that a hospital stay is required in order for home care to be covered. Now, both of these conditions put restrictions on the Medicare Advantage patients that are not placed on traditional Medicare patients, so this is a clear violation. Now, it is possible that this is just a poorly written notice that was not fact-checked, but if the person who wrote this notice also wrote the edit that will reject these claims, that's a problem. So keep a close eye on your home care authorizations and an even closer eye on these devious Medicare Advantage plans. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report, here is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Chuck. Many times during appeals of rack audits, providers and I do the math, and we realize that the amount being demanded back is actually more than the amount the provider initially received during that purported universe time. For example, the recruitment demand is $12 million for claims during 2017 to 2018. But in 2017 and 2018, the provider only received reimbursements for $10 million. There are many different reasons for these discrepancies. Bad math. Uh, maybe the RATSTAT software program is not as 90% confident level as the RAC auditors would like to admit. But one of the most common problems I have seen is assigning the wrong reimbursement amount to a CPT code. Think about how often fee schedules are amended, how often one CPT code can have its reimbursement rate decreased over the course of two years. The universe pulled by the RAC auditors, or for that matter, the MAC or TPE auditors, need to accurately reflect the revisions to the fee schedules over that period of time. Let me give you a couple examples or a few examples that I've encountered over the years that auditors have been known to misstep in three common areas. Number one, misinterpreting the fee schedules or forgetting about certain exceptions. Number two is just plain error. Number three, disproportionate distribution of higher paid claims within the sample. So going to number one, forgetting the exceptions. I had a group home that was demanded a recruitment for multiple clients. But at the time, those multiple clients had been hospitalized or jailed. The alleged overpayment did not, however, take into consideration the exceptions of payments if the provider is required to hold the bed for the resident. While it's not a full nightly payment amount or daily amount, that amount still was not calculated in the alleged overpayment. There are also instances of plain mistakes. Yesterday, in preparation of this RAC Monitor presentation, I went to CMS's fee schedule information website. Within five minutes, I had discovered a problem. Look at this screenshot. Do you notice that under the downloads is a zip code to carrier locality file with a revised date of May 15, 2019? Yet the page last modified at the bottom right states that the page was last modified March 3rd, 2019. See the discrepancy? 
Going to number three, which is the disproportionate distribution. I've seen rack audits of universes that disproportionately include higher reimbursement claims. For example, if 50% of your practice is devoted to reimbursement amounts of $100 and the other 50% is devoted to reimbursement claims for $1,000, the universe needs to appropriately represent that 50-50 split. Now, this example is an oversimplification of a much more esoteric issue. But remember that CMS recently reiterated the need for balance of claims in the universe in the May 2019 blog by Secretary Verma. Just remember, as the old proverb says, there's more than one way to skin a cat or an inaccurate universe. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Ellen Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dwayne Abbey, and Dr. John Hall. This is Monday. It's July 8th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Whether you are dealing with Medicare or private insurers, you need to understand how to best approach denials. And now you will, thanks to an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast led by nationally recognized healthcare attorney David Glazer. This important webcast will provide you and your team with useful legal arguments for responding to denials. Learn proven strategies to best package your appeals, including how to write effective appeal letters and execute smart legal approaches. Join healthcare attorney David Glazer for the exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, Learn Proven Strategies for Building a Better Appeal, Improving Letters, Arguments, and Process. It's Wednesday, July 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Click on the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast to register and save $40 by entering the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Thanks, Lark. And now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Education webcast series. Sign up now for a free three-day trial. Click on the tab above or visit the Rack Monitor bookstore. Time for the Risky Business Report, and with that report, here is David Glazer. Good morning, David. What could be risky this morning? Well, good morning, Chuck. So today it's the risk of unquestioningly accepting what you hear in the media. So last week, I was watching This Week with George Stephanopoulos, and that doesn't sound very clear, does it? But I guess I should say, maybe I should say on June 30th, I was watching This Week with George Stephanopoulos, and the last segment on the show was about the problems confronting rural hospitals and the fact that many rural hospitals are closing. The report quoted a physician saying, and this is a quote, decreasing Medicare reimbursement helped ruin the hospital, unquote. Now, as a curious and cynical soul, I know enough to doubt just about everything, and then to distrust my doubt. But on this point, I feel 100% confidence. Since Medicare pays critical access hospitals on a basis, which is a generous reimbursement methodology that hasn't changed in years, We know that critical access hospitals are not losing money on Medicare patients. That portion of the report is most certainly wrong. Now, people can periodically conflate Medicare and Medicaid, and I thought briefly maybe that's what happened there. But the physician definitely used the word Medicare. I went back and listened to it again, and I think he would know the difference. He cited declining Medicare reimbursement as the key source of the problem. 
Now, I realize not every rural hospital is a critical access hospital, uh, and perhaps the hospitals that are closing have some other non-cost-based reimbursement. But my suspicion is that Medicare reimbursement is not the real issue here, and that, in fact, other factors are driving the closures. And this is where I need your help. Why are rural hospitals closing? I've got theories. I've worked with clients that have tremendous difficulty staffing rural locations. I can think of a hospital that was unable to find a physician, NP, or PA to staff its ED, necessitating its closure. Medicaid reimbursement is incredibly low in many states. Many rural hospitals treat large, a large number of Medicaid recipients. The report emphasized that many of the closures are in states that opted not to expand Medicaid, and I suspect that may be the biggest factor in play, especially if you think of low Medicaid reimbursement and too many uninsured patients. While the number of uninsured patients has certainly declined over the last decade, the issue is still real. Another factor that might be out there is the 340B cuts, um, which might be material, and despite a favorable court challenge, they really haven't been fully reversed yet, but I certainly wouldn't call that a Medicare reimbursement cut. Now, I've got another theory, but for this one, my evidence is purely anecdotal. Historically, most hospitals, including rural hospitals, were independent. Now, many of them are part of a system. A system may choose to close a facility that's financially viable if the system believes that the overall economic performance of the system would be improved by the decision. Is that happening here? I don't know, but I wonder. But this is where I want to ask for your help. What's your theory on the reason rural hospitals are closing? I don't want to repeat the error made on that ABC News segment of just spouting a theory that isn't accurate, so please offer any evidence you've got to support it. What do you think of the theories I've tossed out so far? The ABC report also listed aging communities, which because of cost-based reimbursement for Medicare seems wrong to me, but then they mentioned poor health, expensive treatments, gaps in insurance, and a shortage of physicians. The last two seem quite real. Are the others? Chuck, as I listened to someone claim that falling Medicare reimbursement is destroying rural hospitals, I thought of the Delamitri song, which just nailed it. The TV's gone mad. Don't let me be the last to know what's causing rural hospitals to close. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Several different trends are affecting physician payment. Joining us now for our Monday Focus Report is author, educator, consultant, Dwayne Abbey. Monday Focus Report is brought to you by Change Healthcare, providing technology-enabled revenue integrity services to help you improve efficiency, reduce costs, optimize revenue, and more effectively manage complex workflows. Visit changehealthcare.com. Here now is Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, everyone. If you go back about 10 years, physician payment, at least under the Medicare program, was reasonably stable. We um, looked at the relative values. They continued to study them, etc. cetera. Uh, we looked forward to an increased conversion factor, etc. And, of course, over about the last 10, maybe even 15 years, 
things have started to change dramatically. And uh, so I thought I'd pull together some of the areas where we all need, uh, particularly if you are involved in physician payment in any way, shape, or form, uh, that areas that you need to be familiar with. And we start out with the uh, base thing, which is RBRVS, the Resource-Based Relative Value Scale. Now, if you have not recently downloaded this or never downloaded it, uh, please do so. It requires quite a bit of study, but it has uh, a lot of information. It has the relative values. It has the um, global surgical period. It has the surgical breakdown. has the conversion factor, among other things. It has a lot of things. And so you'll need to be fully uh, conversant with uh, RBRVS to understand what is going on. Now, we used to have the sustainable growth rate, uh, which uh, was not working. Therefore, um, CMS decided to uh, do away with it, and in place of it, uh, put MIPS, the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, uh, and I'm talking about the basic uh, MIPS, and we'll talk a little bit about that because from uh, my perspective, uh, this really is a shell game. We're taking a little bit of money from the um, low-quality physicians and giving it to the high-quality physicians. Of course, we have to figure out how to determine uh, who is high and who is low quality. Also, the global surgical package is going away, at least I think it is. Uh, CMS is working on this right now. This is a bit unusual in that they are unbundling, whereas the uh, trend has normally been to bundle things together. So watch the elimination of the global surgical package and uh, the impact that that might possibly have. I've already mentioned uh, MIPS. Now, MIPS is being implemented. Yes, it's out there. It is occurring. Uh, there are going to be financial implications as well as compliance, and, uh, compliance concerns. Now, if you also have not visited the uh, CMS Innovation Center payment models, please do so. There's a lot of activity on what I call the advanced models, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, and there's a lot of activity. They're doing a lot, a lot of different things out there. So, uh, Watch yourself, please. Watch yourself, please. Uh, make sure that you are up to date on these things as well. Of course, we have ENM coding and documentation changes. In theory, CMS is making things easier. At least that's what they claim. Relative to a clinic visit, ENM coding, but they're also going to 
shift some reimbursement. So I'm not quite sure how that's all going to work. We'll have to wait and see. Also, you may be involved in provider-based clinics. And uh, wow, all I can say is that there are a lot of changes there, especially since BIBA 2015. So be sure you're up to date on that. Telehealth, yep, we have changes coming in telehealth. This is going to be an interesting world over the next three to five years with telehealth. So there's a, a little bit of a smorgasbord of things to look at relative to physician payment. And uh, yes, by all means, keeping up is going to uh, take some real time and effort. Okay, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dwayne, very much. That was author, educator, consultant, Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants in Ames, Iowa. Two states, Minnesota and Nebraska, are in the news thanks to CMS. For an explanation on this developing story, it's Alan Fink-Sandwich. She joins us now. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, everyone. So a recent story in Managed Healthcare Executive had the curious headline, Mental Health Care Needs Are Increasing. Curious since mental health incidence has trended up for years, especially for populations at risk of the social determinants. Diagnoses associated with social inequities, substance use, mental depre- uh, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and schizophrenia. Recognition of co-occurring health and behavioral health domains of chronic illness with anxiety, depression, and substance use. Focus on trauma across all ages in response to the adverse child experiences or now famous ACEs, clients facing violence, abuse, neglect, exploitation, abandonment, crime, incarceration, plus other factors. As the World Health Organization has stated, the greater the inequality, the higher the inequality and risk. Now, mental health incidents and the social determinants are intertwined. Mental illness incidents highest for adults below the poverty level. Substance abuse treatment admission rates among rural regions far higher than inner cities. Medicaid still the top payer for mental health, approaching almost 30% of all adults. One answer funding. Enter CMS. They announced last week 11-15 demonstration waivers for Minnesota and Nebraska to expand care for Medicaid institutions for mental diseases, the IMDs, over the next five years. These waivers provide Medicaid matching funds for treatment in IMDs and address the opioid epidemic, reduce overuse, and improve mortality. Minnesota's waiver extends funding for community behavioral health clinics. Nebraska's waiver promotes Medicaid partners through the state's managed care program, health systems, and Department of Behavioral Health to provide public inpatient and outpatient facilities, emergency community health, and substance use assistance. Another response, populations continue to take care of their own. In my my old professional stomping grounds of Brooklyn, New York, a new neighborhood health hub addresses co-occurring mental and physical health care. San Diego County approved $23.8 million to expand mental health and substance abuse emergency response and crisis centers. 
Pharmacists in impoverished communities around St. Louis are providing education on health and behavioral health symptoms and medication management to reduce common stigmas. A $100 million FCC pilot proposal is scheduled for a vote this week on July 10th. The goal is to enhance health and mental health access for low-income veterans across rural regions. The bottom line, the social determinants of mental health aren't new. Now, the URL for the World Health Organization's seminal report on this topic is in the Links for Ellen tab. And my report brings me to this week's Monday Monitor survey. Which behavioral health challenges present most often for your patient populations? Delays over a week to schedule outpatient counseling appointments? Delays over a week to schedule psychiatric follow-up for medication management? Lack of appropriate specialty programs or providers in the region, such as addiction or eating disorders, psychiatrists, addiction specialists, behavioral health counseling professionals lack of appropriate specialty programs and providers in the region that accept the client's insurance, such as not accepting Medicaid or being out of network. We'll return to the survey at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant author, Alan Fink-Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. CMS Administrator Seema Verma has raised the anxiety levels of healthcare providers with her blog post on May 2nd. To explain why, we are joined by Dr. John Hall, who reports our lead story. Good morning, John. Seems to be uh, an ominous warning in her post. What do we need to know about that? Thanks, Chuck. By now, everyone has heard about Seema Verma's post on May 2nd. Verma stated that CMS would require the RACs to maintain a 95% accuracy score and an overturn rate of less than 10%. That sounds good compared to the historical overturn rate of 75%. Verma also stated that RACs must audit proportionally to the types of claims a provider submits. Many providers construe her post as an ominous warning that the RACs are about to be unleashed again. The RACs at this point might be expected to be yearning for additional business and revenue, and providers should expect the RACs to begin aggressive reviews and denials. We should support CMS' attempt to control contractors and hold them accountable, but Verma's post raises several concerns. First, CMS has defined neither accuracy score nor overturn rate. There's no indication of provider impact if contractors fail to meet metrics. Second, this means there's a legitimate concern that observation claims could be reviewed simply based on their volume. Third, with potentially high stakes related to accuracy and appeals outcome, Providers should be suspicious that RACs will review claims that are subject to denial based on objective findings in the medical record. This is a stark contrast to the soft denials based on, quote, medical necessity. If Verma is to be believed, the historical practice of denials based on soft differences in medical opinion should be limited. So let's consider the largest volume risk area, observation. There are two potential observation denials. The first denial is based on failure to document the essential elements of observation services. The second type consists of observation claims that should have been inpatient. Let's look at each of these. CMS explicitly defines observation services. The deceptively simple definition is surprisingly hard to meet in practice. In preparation for review, several questions should be asked of each observation claim. First, does the documentation indicate what is being treated, assessed, and reassessed? 
Second, is there documentation of ongoing treatment, assessment, and reassessment, or is the patient being seen once a day and just housed? Last, does the documentation indicate that parameters might trigger admission for further treatment or if the patient might be discharged from the hospital? Implicit in observation is a decision that is, that is related to admission or discharge. The second type of denial arises when observation stays exceed two midnights. Under the two midnight rule, these should have been an inpatient. These records are unlikely to document rare and exceptional circumstances to permit prolonged observation payment. Rebilling as Part A would probably be prohibited since the claim would have no valid inpatient order. To summarize, the reasons for concerns related to observation claims are, first, they probably meet the volume requirement for every provider. Second, they are unlikely to be sufficiently documented to meet the definition of observation. And third, they are very hard to appeal. Providers should begin assessing these risks and planning their mitigation strategies now. In the next segment, we'll discuss other claims potentially at risk based on Burma's recent guidance. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was Dr. John Hall. Dr. Hall is the founder of the Aegeus Firm. And now is the time for the results for the Modern Money Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. So which behavioral health challenge presents most often for the patient population of our Monday monitor listeners? 17% said delays over a week to schedule outpatient counseling appointments. 6% said delays over a week to schedule psychiatric follow-up for medication management. And here's where the big numbers come in. 44% of listeners said lack of appropriate specialty program providers in the region, and 33% said lack of appropriate specialty program providers that accept the client's assurance. Interesting outcomes, to say the least, Chuck. Thanks very much, Ellen. Yeah, very interesting outcomes. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, to Wayne Abbey, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Sandrick, whom you just heard, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. John Hall. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>